The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. We have an interesting program and we are very fortunate to have as a return guest Dr. Trista Bailey. Uh, Dr. Bailey is with the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy where she is a geriatric specialist and she also provides services to several long-term care facilities uh, on the side. Dr. Trista Bailey, welcome to our program. Well, thank you for having me back. We had so much wonderful feedback about the interview that you did three weeks ago today. And as we talked uh, after that program, there just was not enough time to talk about the area of psychotropic medications. And so I felt that a program that you and I did that just addressed that area would be really helpful because these are medications that are frequently misunderstood and um, and often um their use it, it comes with a price, and so I felt that it would be a good idea to talk about that issue. I agree. It can be very daunting when your family member is placed on a medication that can um, potentially alter the chemicals in your brain, so I think it's helpful to be able to understand them and not be um, so afraid of, of starting these medications if your loved one needs to be on it. You know, the prescribing in this area is difficult compared to other areas. You know, when you consider treating blood pressure or high cholesterol, treating uh, thyroid problems and things like that, the physician has several tools available that are very helpful. And one of the most important of which is a specific labs that will tell them whether they are normalizing that targeted area or not. So uh, labs or other studies. So if you put a person on a blood pressure medicine, you simply check blood pressure at different times and determine whether the blood pressure is staying normal or whether the medications need to be tweaked more. But with these psychotropic medications, it is difficult to measure the targeted symptoms, isn't it? Depression. How do you measure depression or anxiety? So that does make prescribing in this area more difficult. It definitely does. Like you mentioned, with uh, some of the chronic diseases like high blood pressure and high cholesterol, there's guidelines and there's um, easy ways to measure out as far as if the medication's effective as well as being safe. Um, but when you talk about the psychotropic medications, it becomes a lot more subjective information rather than the objective values that you'll get from a lab test. 
I think that's correct. And, and so when we think about how do we know whether the prescribing is being helpful or not, you know, um, there are different things that we go through. One is obviously a self-report. If someone's being given an antidepressant medication or an anti-anxiety medication, you simply um, ask them, are you feeling less anxious? Are you feeling less depressed or more hopeful or more positive? Also, of course, you understand um, the treatment effects from what others will have to say. The person appears better, appears less anxious or whatever. Standardized measures that can be used, but often this is a highly inferential and highly subjective process. And we also have the problem of causation here. You know, for example, uh, depression or anxiety, is that because of a situation, because of situational factors, or do the depression and anxiety actually cause the situational factors or exacerbate? So all of this does make it a lot more difficult to have a coherent and and rationally based approach. Fortunately, the medications are effective overall, the antidepressants and and anti-anxiety medications, aren't they? Exactly. Um, And then in patients with dementia, it's further complicated and compounded by the fact that they aren't able to um, to exactly voice their complaints. And so a lot of the behaviors that they they have, they may act out or act agitated um, um, a little bit more than usual, that can manifest and and be um, misinterpreted as something um, like, you know, an agitation or a, you know, hallucination rather than maybe they're just depressed or have pain or something like that. That's a very good point. You know, if you have a patient with dementia, Uh, presenting some behavioral challenges um, or uh, that person's level of functioning has somehow changed, we might suspect that that's because of depression or anxiety or fearfulness, but because of the difficulties of self-report, because of the difficulties in communication and in remembering day-to-day events and how a person is feeling during events, it does make it so much more difficult to establish the causation Exactly. So oftentimes behaviors almost need to be um, diagnosed by ruling out other things. So you want to assess the other comorbidities. So is the patient having pain? Um, Do they have um, issues with sleeping through the night? Um, Are you treating their blood pressure and um, any kind of respiratory problems they have? Maybe they aren't able to get enough oxygen to their brain so they're confused and they just need an inhaler. Um, Another thing that's commonly overlooked is um, making sure the patient can hear and see things appropriately. Um, A common complaint is that, you know, a, a daughter or a son may say, you know, I told my mom several different times Um, that I was going to the store, but when I came back from the store, she was angry because she said I didn't tell her she's not remembering. Well, maybe she didn't hear you in the first place. So it's really important to be able to rule out any, um, you know, chronic conditions that can be easily fixed with a hearing aid, with an inhaler, uh, making sure they're wearing appropriate prescription glasses um, before you just assume that they have dementia or they have some kind of behavior. You know, Trista, you just hit very quickly and over a short period of time on so many key issues. So we may see that someone 
appears depressed, appears restless, anxious, fearful, and that sort of thing. But then you start considering if a person physically just does not feel good due to blood pressure fluctuations, if a person is not well oxygenated due to COPD or something along those lines, or if a person is not hearing it or seeing well, or especially if a person's consistently not sleeping well, that certainly can have a big impact And what you're saying is very wise. Rule out those types of things before you treat with the psychotropic medication. Exactly. Well, let's talk, you know, there are several categories that we will discuss here. And um, I thought we might talk about the antidepressant medications and then talk about the anxiety medications, the so-called anxiolytics. Uh, Also talk about the hypnotics or sleep medications. We want to be sure and talk about the antipsychotics because that is such a... uh, Uh, such a challenging area with older individuals and especially older individuals with dementia. So why don't we begin with antidepressant medications? Um, Depression, as I think that many of our listeners are aware, depression is not just a feeling. You know, depression is not the same as just feeling sad or having a grief response. You know, there's an expected sadness when somebody moves from a level of independent functioning into a long-term care facility, when a family member dies, a loved one dies, and things like that, there's a grief response. But when we talk about depression, we talk about three different areas of symptoms. One will be the emotional area, one will be the cognitive, and one will be what we would call the neurobiological area. With respect to emotion, of course, generally feeling sad, feeling down, feeling blue, and things like that are certainly a component of it. And this may be seen as crying or tearfulness or increased emotionality. In terms of cognitive changes, this would be seen as looking at the glass as half empty, looking at the negative side of things, looking at the downside of things, as well as having some decrease in overall cognitive efficiency. Now, when we talk about the neurobiology, We talk about having less energy, less appetite, uh, less uh, physical motivation and energy to do things. So when we talk about using antidepressant medications, we really want to talk about something that will address that whole constellation of symptoms, right? Exactly. So what kinds of antidepressant medications are available? Well, there's several different categories of antidepressant medications, and the good thing about each category is they kind of target certain symptoms, like you were mentioning. Uh, One of the most common types of categories are going to be your selective serotonin receptor uptake inhibitors, or your SSRIs. Now, these medications are going to be like your Prozac, your Celexa, your Zoloft. Um, generally, they're pretty well tolerated, um, and that's usually what we go to first line to treat a lot of um, elderly depressive symptoms. And why are they the first line, Trista? Well, they're generally well tolerated. They have some side effects um, associated with them. They can cause a little GI upset. Um, certain ones, such as Selexa or Paxil, can be a... Um, cause some sedation, Um, but overall, they're going to help out with uh, one of the primary um, neurological problems, which is a low serotonin level in patients with depression, so it's going to give them a little bit more of a um, boost 
in their serotonin level. Okay. And what would be the next category then? Um, you also have your SNRIs or your um, selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Um, these are very similar medications because they also help with the serotonin, which is going to give you that little boost. Um, but with these medications, these are going to be like your Effexor or Cymbalta. Um, and then there's the new one, Prestique. These are also going to help with serotonin and pretty generally well-tolerated. However, they do um, can cause fluctuations in blood pressure. So that's something to consider if someone has like a cardiovascular history. And that becomes a very important consideration. And then there are the older antidepressants, which are certainly not your first line and not your second line. But what are the older antidepressants? These are going to be your tricyclics or your TCA antidepressants. Um, the reason why we try to avoid these is because they have some pretty messy side effects. I call these the messy drugs. Um, they can um, cause a lot of anticholinergic effects. And by that, I mean they're very um, drying. So they can um, compete with the acetylcholine in your brain, and this will cause a lot of um, urinary retention. It can cause um, constipation, dry mouth. Um, it can even contribute to the confusion. And so we generally try to stay away from the TCAs. Um, one of the more commonly prescribed TCA is going to be amitriptyline or Elevil. You know, it's interesting that uh, we still see older individuals who may be taking amitriptyline for a long time because they began taking it in middle adulthood due to, let's say, a sleep disturbance together with a chronic pain condition or something like that. But when, when it comes to uh, continuing on that medication into older adulthood, it becomes problematic, doesn't it? Exactly. You bring up a very good point. So um, my dad actually was asking me about some of his uh, medications recently, and he started taking them when he was a middle adult in his 40s and 50s. And now that he's starting to push 60, sorry, Dad, didn't mean to mention that on, <laughs> the, on the radio. Out. But um, he's starting to, re he's noticing more side effects. Um, and this is what happens as you age. You start to respond to medications differently. Um, there's, like we mentioned at the last show, there's different changes in the body and um, different um, functions change. And because of that, you respond to medications differently. So even if you were a younger adult and you responded well to the amitriptyline and had no problems, as you age, you might notice an increase in side effects. Well, that's very interesting, and we will come back in just a few minutes. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Trista Bailey regarding psychotropic medication, so please stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. 
Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. By making some important changes in your life, you can move forward from where you are to where you wish to be. It is becoming the change you want to see. It can be a sort of experiment, if you will. On Moving Forward, Wellness One Step at a Time, your host, Dr. Serena Wadhwa, will introduce you to ideas that can help improve your health, relationships, and finances. You probably have at least one part of your life that needs improving. Make an appointment now to join us every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Dr. Trista Bailey, and our topic this, this afternoon, this evening, is psychotropic medication use in the elderly. And right now we are talking under the heading of depression. We talked a little bit about what clinical depression means. And uh, Dr. Bailey pointed out to us the SSRIs, which are the first line of approach for prescribing for depression in older individuals. And then the SNRI group, the selective uh, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And we talked briefly about a, a group of medications to be avoided the tricyclics, the most commonly used of which is amitriptyline, or what used to be called Elevil. It also went under the name of NDEP, if I remember right, from years past. Um, Trista, if someone begins taking amitriptyline in middle adulthood, and it's used very appropriately, and it's used effectively there, and they come into advanced age, and it's time to take them off that medication, what do you change to? Well, that's a very, very good question, and that's um, when you want to start having conversations with your physician. Um, what you really want to target is going to be the symptoms, like we've, we talked about the three areas of depression. Um, so amitriptyline is commonly given for patients that um, need help with sleep um, and maybe help with pain as well. Um, so you want to use antidepressants that are also going to be equivalent for treating those types of of symptoms. So um, there's a medication called trazodone um, that's an antidepressant that can help um, with sleep, and that would be a good option. Um, some of the sedating SSRIs like Celexa can also be a good, um, a good change of that medication. But those would be medications that would avoid the side effects that we have with the amitriptyline, like the anticholinergic drying effects. Um, or any kind of cardiotoxic effects that the amitriptyline may have. 
So those are things that you do not see with trazodone. What are the side effects associated with trazodone? With, with trazodone, um, your biggest side effect, which sometimes can be a benefit, is the sedation that it can cause. What you worry about is it causing sedation into the daytime hours as well. So you would like to have the sedation at night to help the person settle into sleep. Exactly. There is another antidepressant called Remeron. Yes. Teach us so, about Remeron. Yes, Remeron is a, actually a very good agent to use, especially in patients that maybe have depression in the end stages of dementia. So um, patients that maybe have um, weight loss or failure to thrive. Remeron, also known as mirtazapine, um, helps with sedation and it also helps with uh, weight gain and increasing appetite. So um, in patients that maybe need a boost in appetite, uh, Remeron is a good option because of its side effects. But in turn, you have to watch out for causing weight gain. So like I mentioned, it just really depends on the patient as to what agent you really want to give them. And Remeron is pretty tolerable in an older group, at other low, than the weight gain? Uh, generally, at low doses, it's going to be pretty tolerable. Um, so what I say um, to my students and to physicians that dose medications, you want to start with the lowest available dose and then half that. So you want to start with low doses, and generally at low doses, it's fairly tolerable. You know, you um, educated us three weeks ago on what we referred to as bioavailability and uh, pharmacokinetics, and that basically has to do with the manner in which a medication comes into the body, is uh, acted upon by uh, whatever structures of the body to be distributed throughout the body and then is somehow metabolized or excreted or something like that. And is Remeron... Um, is it is the bioavailability significantly different in an older population? Good question. I don't believe that it is. I believe so, that it, it's just the the elderly population is a lot more susceptible to the um, neurotransmitter effects that it's I going see. to have. Okay, and so the neurotransmitter changes with age. Uh, would cause an older person to respond differently to Remeron compared to a middle-aged or young adult person. Exactly. All right, now let's change gears and let's go to anxiety. And I'll try an initial definition of anxiety to give our readership some idea of what it's about. And like depression, anxiety will have many, many different components, you know, especially three. When we look at the emotional aspect of anxiety, it may be experienced as being tense, being nervous, being on edge, uneasy, fearful, apprehensive, having difficulty relaxing. Um, it uh, may be experienced as um, pending a pending catastrophe, something horrible about to happen. So in the emotional experience of anxiety, you have these types of things. In the cognitive realm, what you have is a tendency to see the fearful aspects or the um, threatening aspects of all situa situations, a tendency to have a, a persisting sense of loss of control, loss of control of oneself or 
of a situation, um, a perception of threats to one's well-being, a sense of powerlessness, and then in what we would um, uh, call the neurobiology of it, we would be looking at the classic fight-or-flight response that everybody studied in high school biology, or not everybody studied, but people were exposed to it in high school biology. That would have to do with increasing heart rate, increasing blood pressure, respiration changes, perspiration changes, uh, vascular changes throughout the body, muscle tightness, and things like that. So if we take these as the examples of um, uh, the symptoms of anxiety, Trista, what would uh, what are the medication approaches that can be used for anxiety? Well, there's a lot of anxiety associated with um, dementia patients. Um, it can manifest at the beginning stages of dementia when they start realizing they're not um, capable of remembering things as well as they used to, um, to the end stages of dementia where they start um, manifesting things to worry about um, and remembering um past memories that that give them anxiety. And so one of the most common medications to treat anxiety are going to be your benzodiapines, also known as your benzos. Um, These are going to be medications like Valium, um, Xanax, Lorazepam. Um, They can even be used to help with sleep, and that's going to be your benzo, which is Temazepam or Restoril. Okay. How do these drugs work? Um, Generally, they're going to work on your GABA receptors in your brain. And so what they do is help to calm that fight-or-flight response that you talked about. So GABA, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, GABA, um, uh, for our listeners, is gamma-aminobutyric acid, is one of the neurotransmitters of the brain, and it's largely an inhibitory neurotransmitter overall. And and so these... um, uh, benzodiazepines react by increasing that inhibition. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Go right ahead. I interrupted you. No, you're fine. Um, so with the benzodiapines, they also have side effects that you do have to watch out for in the, in the elderly population. Um, they are often um, excreted through the renal um, system. And so we talked about at the last um, time we met about how as you age, um, your kidney function declines. And so if you have medications that are excreted through the kidneys, then um, you can potentially have a buildup of of medications if they're not excreted appropriately. So a lot of these benzos, um, if not uh, dosed appropriately, can cause metabolite buildup. And so you get a lot of side effects from them. And what would those side effects look like? Um, one of the biggest ones we worry about in the elderly population is going to be um, sedation or increased risk of falls. They can cause dizziness um, at very high doses, too. It can actually induce a lot of the dementia-like confusion symptoms. Um, so that's something you have to uh, avoid to make sure that you don't actually worsen the confusion when dosing these what? medications. What is the the good first-line medication for treating anxiety in an older person? So generally when is we, it Valium or is it one of the others? It's actually one of the others. Uh, we, we stay away from Valium because it has a very long um, time in the body, also known as a half-life. 
Uh, if you think about medications being kind of like isotopes, like radioactive isotopes, um, they're measured by half-life in the body. And so Valium stays in your body for a very long time. So uh, we have a nice acronym. Uh, us in medicine, we love our acronyms. Um, <laughs> we have our LOT medications, L-O-T, which stands for lorazepam, which is um, known by Ativan, oxazepam, and then temazepam, which is Restoril. So lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam. So the recommendation is to start with those and, um, and then uh, work through until we have therapeutic benefit or a therapeutic effect. Right, exactly. Those are the ones that are preferred because they have um, minimal problems um, being excreted through the body. Um, they generally are not going to be very long-active. They're going to be about mid-active uh, or short-active, and so you don't have to worry about them having an increased risk of causing a lot of side effects for a prolonged amount of time. With this class of medication, is addiction a significant problem? It can be, and that's something to consider given the patient's um, past history. And that's why we like to um, avoid some of the other types, and that's why we, we like our lot medications. Um, now, if you're using the medication appropriately for patients that have anxious symptoms um, in combination with other things like maybe, um, you know, supportive therapy, um, then the risk of having addiction is low, um, but it is something to consider patients. Well, thank you, Trista, and we are going to go to a break, and when we return, we will talk more about this class of medications and compare some aspects of them to the antidepressant medications as well. So please stay with us, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. 
Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. We are back, and we are talking with Dr. Trista Bailey with the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy, where she is a geriatric specialist, and she has so much wisdom and so much knowledge to share with us. Trista, I am very grateful to you for joining us again to have this discussion. We have talked about antidepressant medications and anxiety medications, and I would like now to talk a little bit about two concepts which are easily misunderstood, addiction and tolerance. Could you talk about those two concepts? Yes, and I I think that's a good point to bring up. A lot of people confuse the addiction versus tolerance. So addiction is going to be whenever you need medication or more medication to treat symptoms that do not exist. Um, Tolerance is going to be when you treat medications and need more medication um, for symptoms that do exist. So um, there are medications like the benzodiapines we were mentioning, also a lot of opioid narcotics. Um, Those are going to have an increased risk of being addictive medications. Um, So people will take them when they don't really have pain or don't have anxiety because of the changes it can cause. Like with the benzodiapines, it causes um, the increase in the GABA. So you can almost get a little bit of, of a, little bit of a high. Um, now, tolerance is going to be having symptoms that needed to be medically treated. So patients that have anxiety, um, they need to, be, um, to have that change in GABA so that they can have relief from their symptoms. Now, because your body gets used to medications, um, typically over time you might need an increase in medications. So, um, for example, the benzodiapines, um, your body gets used to a certain level of, of the benzodiapine being in your system. And so you may need um, more of a dosage as the anxiety begins to manifest itself again. Um, now, this isn't going to be addiction because you're treating the symptoms. So um, the the key difference is whether the symptom is present or not, and then how whether it takes more medication to treat symptoms that are actually present, or or whether the person is simply needing the medication not for symptom control. Very, very interesting point. Now, the hard question is this, and I know that the the researcher that can answer this will become rich and famous, but as far as we understand right now, what is it physically? that uh, causes or is associated with addiction and tolerance? Is this a psychological dependency? Is this a physical phenomenon? What is it that happens? Well, it kind of depends, too. I know that um, when you take certain medications, there are changes in your brain. And so um, whenever you have a chemical, um, you have to have a receptor or something that catches the chemical and causes it to 
to do its job in your body. And so um, sometimes as you take a medication, um, your body creates more and more um, receptors that catch this chemical. And so that's one, one of the reasons why you may need more medication. Um, but you're right in, in thinking that really, I mean, what, what boils down to what causes addiction versus tolerance? Very challenging question, isn't it? Exactly. Are antidepressants addictive? That's a very good point. So antidepressants typically have very low addictive properties. Um, they aren't going to give you as much of a of a high that, that the other medications can. Now, So they will make you feel better, but not necessarily give you a high. Exactly. Now, they, that you can get tolerance to these medications, so it's very common that um, physicians end up increasing your dose and titrating you up to a certain um, dose of it, and you can gain tolerance, but typically antidepressants are going to be very low in, in addiction. When we talk about the antidepressants, and this may be partially related to the concept of tolerance, um, let's take an SSRI. Someone is on Prozac or Paxil for a long period of time, does that does the therapeutic effect of that medication usually remain stable over a long period, or do they tend to lose their therapeutic effectiveness over time? Generally, um, these medications keep their therapeutic effect. Um, the problem we run into with these medications, it takes a while to reach that therapeutic effect um, because they have to build up the the chemicals in the brain to a point where you show or feel differences. Um, so in the elderly population, it can take up to eight weeks or two months to really have a full effect of, of the antidepressants. Um, but generally, for the most part, we have they're, they're able to keep that effect. With anxiety medications, the benzodiazepines, on the other hand, the effect is pretty immediate, right? Exactly. So you should have some kind of immediate relief of your symptoms. Let's now go to sleep medications, the so-called hypnotics. You know, there are, as, as you know, Trista, many different types of sleep abnormalities or sleep disorders, and um, a simple breakdown is whether a person has difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep through the night, so frequent awakening during the night, or awakening uh, too early in the morning to the point that they're not rested when they go into the day. So that that's one breakdown that is often used for the uh, sleep medications. But there are other primary sleep disorders, narcolepsy, which is a fairly rare thing actually, uh, sleep apnea, which is becoming increasingly appreciated, um, things like hypersomnolence, which may, you know, uh, excessive sleep, which may be associated with depression or other medications or various um, uh, various types of uh, other medical problems. But what do we have available pharmacologically to treat sleep problems? Well, generally, when we talk about sleep problems, we want to try to fix those non-pharmacologically. Um, Approximately 80% of sleep problems can be treated non-pharmacologically. Um, so that's what we try to aim for. Now, there are pharmacological options. Um, these are known as your Z drugs, kind of like Zs equals sleep. Um, but they work very similar to your benzodiapines. Um, they work on the GABA system. Um, the common medications in this class are going to be like your Ambien, um, also your Lunesta, 
these are going to be medications in that class. Okay. And how effective are these medications? These medications are very effective. Um, they uh, are sometimes too effective. And so some, uh, one of the most common types of side effects is going to be daytime sedation. So they help you fall asleep, but then you're tired the next day. It almost leaves you with a hangover feeling. Um, so that's something you have to watch out for. So generally with these categories of medications in the elderly, we try to use them sparingly. Um, so it's recommended that if a patient needs to be on this medication, that we only use it for a, a, a short amount of time, so two weeks to three months maximum. Um, so patients can jumpstart and work on some of the non-pharmacological options, um, but the, the medications will give immediate relief. So get initial relief with one of these medications and then go to a, non, a non-pharmacologic thing such as changing sleep habits, uh, exercising more, working on other health-related issues and things like that. Exactly. One of the most common things you can do is sleep hygiene. Um, so making sure that the bedroom and your bed is only used for sleep. So avoiding um, eating in bed, avoiding reading in bed, um, making sure that you have a distinct bedtime pattern, um, avoiding daytime naps, um, avoiding caffeinated beverages. It's basically, you know, keeping a regular schedule. And, and it takes a while for your body to get used to this type of schedule. Um, and so having immediate relief with the medications can sometimes be helpful for patients that are um, struggling. What kinds of side effects do these medications have other than the, um, uh, the hangover effect or daytime sedation? I understand, for example, that something like Ambien can be associated with parasomnia-type symptoms, somnambulism, and things like that. Exactly. So um, the parasomnia symptoms are something to be very um, cognizant of if, you know the, if you're on these medications. So um, and higher, especially at higher doses and women are susceptible to these types of side effects. These are going to be your sleep eating, um, your sleep driving, um, sleep talking. And so they can be very dangerous. Um, I think there's a a fairly famous uh, lawsuit that is either still in trial or or going to be ending trial soon with, um, I believe it's Carolyn Kennedy, that um, was on Ambien, and then she had a, a car wreck, and so they're blaming the parasomnia. So it's something to, to be cognizant of that it really does does happen. It really is amazing that someone can, while being asleep, perform such a complex task as driving, isn't it? Exactly. And I appreciate what you're saying that in the long run, the approach to a sleep disorder in an older individual is going to be non-pharmacological, but there may be um, some pharmacologic interventions that will be helpful on a short-term basis and at least get some initial relief from the sleep deprivation. Exactly. And with sleep, there's also some other options. Um, There's some over-the-counter options. A lot of um, my older folks take melatonin. Um, so melatonin is actually a hormone that's released in the brain as a part of your um, circadian rhythm or basically um, when, when your body senses that the, the sun is going down, there's different hormones released. And so uh, melatonin is one of the hormones that makes you sleepy. And so you can actually take um, over-the-counter melatonin um, to supplement your hormone and it would actually cause you to fall asleep. Is melatonin reasonably safe? 
It depends on the brand. When you talk about natural supplements, um, you have to be careful um, because they're not monitored by the FDA. So the bottle can say this is 5 milligrams of melatonin, but there's really nobody testing that particular pill saying that there's 5 milligrams of melatonin. Um, So you want to use safe and reputable brands when you buy um, natural supplements. Um, Now, the good news is most of our CVSs, Walgreens, uh, retail-type pharmacy chains have done their research, and they only buy um, reputable brands. What you really run into a problem is if you buy anything over the Internet. So the the more reputable um, pharmacy stores have already um, verified they're they're careful where they purchase from and um, have a high degree of confidence that five milligrams is five milligrams. Exactly. Now, a common misconception when you think about medications for sleep is that if it's over the counter, it's safer. Um, so, for example, a lot of people take things like Benadryl to fall asleep. And, and they think that, oh, well, it, it's over-the-counter. I don't need a prescription for it, so it's got to be safer than something like Ambien. And that is definitely not true. Um, Benadryl can actually be pretty harmful because of the side effects that it can cause in the elderly population. So it's actually safer to be on a prescription medication than just something over-the-counter. Well, I can tell you I've had so many patients over the years that use Benadryl for help in falling asleep and then develop symptoms of uh, dementia of some sort and simply discontinuing the Benadryl restores them to normal cognitive functioning. Well, Trista, we are going to go to a break and as we go into our last segment, we will get ready to talk about the antipsychotics. So please stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us as we talk with Dr. Trista Bailey. Uh, Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy and a geriatric specialist and she has been helping us to understand the use of antidepressant medications, anxiolytics or anti-anxiety medications and sleep medications in older individuals and we go now to this area of medication called antipsychotics. You know there are a number of um, symptom areas or a number of um, behavioral problem areas that can come up that would make the healthcare provider want to use an antipsychotic if one were available that was really tolerable. This might include things like hallucinations, which are abnormal sensory experiences, seeing things that are not there, hearing things that are not there. may also involve delusions of belief that um, is not founded based on rational process but a belief that someone is trying to hurt you or someone is doing things that um, is contrary to what is good for you. Um, you um, these may also be given consideration for agitation, fearfulness, restlessness, a tendency toward uh, violence in a long-term care setting for example and things like that and yet this class of medications is uh, is a very, very tough class of medications to use in older individuals, isn't it, Trista? Exactly. So we generally try to use these medications um, for patients that um, cannot be redirected. So non-pharmacologically, our, our best option for patients that are displaying these types of behaviors you mentioned, um, we would try to do redirection. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work. For patients, and so that's whenever our antipsychotics would play a part in helping to treat those types of patients. Um, what is a black box warning? So, a black box warning is going to be the strongest warning that the Federal Drug Administration or the FDA can give a medication. Um, basically, it's telling the the providers or the, or the people who give these medications, like your physician, that. Um, these medications come with very significant risks, and it's important that the physician stop and assess the risks before giving this medication. When we look at the antipsychotics, there are some that are very old that are not used much anymore. What would be some examples of those? Um, those are going to be some of your first-generation antipsychotics. Um, prolixin was one. Um, but generally, they're just not recommended to be used anymore. And and now we have this class that are called atypical antipsychotics. Exactly. So those are going to be the second generation antipsychotics. Um, some common uh, medications in that category are going to be um, Zyprexa, um, Abilify, Seroquel. 
those are going to be some of your more new antipsychotics. Okay. And, um, and so with these medications, you have the black box warning, um, and that black box warning says basically what? If you use these medications, what's the risk? You're at an increased risk of sudden cardiac death. So in these medications, the elderly population has seemed to have a higher risk of having a stroke, um, having a um, heart attack that will um, end up in causing the patient to, to pass. And um, it's usually sudden without any, even the patient having like a history of cardiovascular effects. And so that's a very serious consideration, and yet if that does not happen, there are still other side effects from these medications as well that have to be considered, aren't there? Exactly. So these what, are, medic- what are some of those? Yeah, some of these medications can cause, um, we call them extrapyramidal side effects, or EPS. Now, with the second generation, uh, we'd have a less of a risk of causing these types of effects. These are going to be like your tremors, a shuffling gait, um, almost things that kind of mimic Parkinson's disease. Um, now, usually it's a minimal risk, but we still have that problem, like in instances for patients who take Risperdal. Um, it can, these medications can also cause um, a changes in your blood pressure and your cholesterol, and it, we call them metabolic effects. And these are what leads to some of the sudden cardiac deaths and led to the, the black box warning. So basically, the, the healthcare provider is left with a choice here. We have a patient in the, the appropriate setting, let's say, the, the most secure setting that you can have for that patient. And because of difficulties that uh, are presenting there, hallucinations, delusions, leading to agitation, sometimes even violent activity toward other Uh, residents in that facility or towards staff. So you have these kinds of problems on the one hand and they need to be addressed and yet on the other hand addressing them with medications assumes the risk of sudden cardiac arrest, extra pyramidal changes, the Parkinson's disease type changes, um, metabolic changes and things like that. What a difficult, difficult circumstance to have to address. It really is. It's it's definitely weighing the risk and the benefits. Um, since 2006, when this um, black box warning for antipsychotics um, came out, there's actually been a decrease in, um, in in the prescribing of antipsychotics in the elderly. So it does um, cause the physician to cause uh, and to pause. But an interesting uh, study that came out recently, um, antidepressants have a black box warning for causing an increased risk of suicide in adolescents. And so um, since that warning came out for the black box for antidepressants with adolescents, there's actually been an increase in suicides because what's happening is the physicians are afraid to give the antidepressants to to adolescents that, that need the medication. So it'd be interesting, I don't believe there's any studies out there, but it'd be interesting to see if there's more agitation and more physical outbursts um, from dementia patients not being prescribed medications when they need to. 
and that really reveals the dilemma so well, doesn't it? You know, um, the the proverbial rock in a hard spot that one is caught between. I know that there is increased interest and increased effort in providing mental health services to individuals in long-term care settings, and in the long run, that certainly holds a significant hope that environmental factors and other factors can be brought to bear to manage these difficult symptoms and hopefully that will result in decreased use of these uh, fairly dangerous medications. Trista, I've got to tell you, as always, you bring such a reservoir of information together for our listeners and you express things so clearly and so succinctly and I want you to know how much I appreciate you taking the time to again be a guest on the program and you are going to be a resource person for me. I have your phone number. I have your email address. I know where to find you. So thank you so much for being on our program today. Well, thank you for having me back. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. We uh, are grateful to our listeners and hope that the information provided to you is helpful to you and, and gives you a better understanding of uh, issues that may lie ahead in your life with loved ones or that you may be encountering now. I will look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you for listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 